Welcome back to the Ag Tech So What podcast, brought to you by Agventic. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Today, we are back with episode two in our series on regenerative agriculture, or Regen Ag. We had awesome feedback on our first episode featuring Mark Wooten of Jigsaw Farms, who is, you might say, not a fan of the term Regen Ag. And today's guest has a very different view. Sam Chithui is an Australian farmer and entrepreneur who was actually on the podcast way back in episode seven, but we've invited him back to talk about his latest venture, Tasmanian Agriculture Company, or the Taz Ag Co., where he's combining his knowledge of startups with his passion for farming to produce grass-fed wagyu beef, all without actually owning any cows. Sam, in this episode, covers how Taz Ag Co. got started, how the business model uses insights from his time in the ag tech world, what it's like to register a soil carbon project, his views on Regen Ag, and his message for any Regen Ag skeptics out there. Sam starts with an overview of what they're up to at Taz Ag Co. So we run a company called the Tasmanian Agricultural Company, and we do a, a beyond sustainable beef product. It's essentially a, a grass-fed wagyu animal. We farm in a regenerative way, and I mean, we can talk about this too. Regenerative is a fairly loose term, and you know what it actually means to certain people and producers kind of varies. But for us, it means that we follow a fairly regimented time-controlled grazing system or cell grazing as it's more commonly known. We also use a lot of multi-species crops across our farm and we have also moved away from insecticides, fungicides, most herbicides and all synthetic fertiliser. We'll come back to more of Sam's views on Regen Ag, but I wanted to jump to how they got started. Just a couple of years ago, Sam was working in the startup world as general manager and co-founder of SproutX, Australia's first ag tech accelerator. But even at that time, he was feeling the pull to start something himself. I suppose I I just miss production. I miss I miss being on farm. I miss the outdoors and I mean, some people say it's in your blood or, or whatever, but first and foremost, I wanted to do something that was, that was mine or that was ours and our family unit and, and build build something. I'm sick of making everyone else money. And for me personally, just yeah, connecting back with nature was a really big thing. Sam and his wife, Steph, started with the demand side, as in the consumer, from the very beginning. Steph, my wife, when we were planning this business said, well, what's after grass fed? Like what's the next thing? And, and for us, it was carbon positive beef or beef that's produced in a way that actually heals and, and encourages the environment to do what it's supposed to do. So yeah, that's kind of where it all came about. And I mean, we're actually processing our first animal this weekend as a trial and a test, which is kind of grim when you pick the first one out, but uh, that's, I suppose, what we're, we're here to do. And and yeah, it's going to be really exciting to see kind of this time next week, we would have tasted our first product, which is going to be pretty intense it'll be a two and a half years of work what are you testing for um tenderness <laughs> so yeah no eating quality really and, and to see how the marbling's going i checked in with sam as i was pulling together this episode and he said the test went well which is important as they've changed things up at Tazag co in quite a few ways borrowing insights about business models and finance from the startup world and applying them to agriculture our business, I would argue, is quite innovative in, in most of the ways in which we operate. So the way we're structured, the way we raised our capital, the way we have structured our operations company and our property company, our PropCo and OpCo. And I suppose into that point, the way we 
we produce, having watched it, the startups be very effective at getting big, heavy things off their balance sheet because, therefore, if you've got heavy things on your balance sheet, you've got to raise more money and, therefore, give away more equity, right? And I hate to use these cliched examples of Airbnb and Uber, but you've got, you know, biggest transport company in the world doesn't own a car, you know, that whole thing. How can we be a big beef producer and not own a cow? So we actually... Uh, yeah, put out our high-growth waggies into dairies. Um, they don't want their half their calf drop. They actually kill them under a week old, and so they've got an animal welfare issue. And we therefore pivot a waste product into a high-value product, and we essentially breed cattle without owning cows. Um, so that's been a really cool part of our business. And one of the things I probably underestimated, you know, they'd say keep it simple, stupid, and all that stuff, but it's actually become a very complex, difficult kind of production model that we've had to kind of really clamp down on if we're if we're to produce a consistent quality kind of premium beef product. There are a couple of key things on the finance side that had to come together to get this model to work. And again, Sam has drawn on business examples from outside of agriculture for inspiration. The Propco is my wife and I, um, the Tasmanian government have got an amazing loan for new or young farmers at an interest rate that's better than I can get off family. So uh, so we've got that set up um, with the Tassie Gov. We then went and raised equity capital um, for the actual operations company. And I suppose if you think about it, a, a farming business is actually not worth anything as a business. It's a, it's a bunch of capital and human capital that have been put together to produce a commodity. But the actual underlying business, you know, unlike a, a, say, takeaway shop on the corner, you can put a valuation on a takeaway shop or a startup, as hard as that may be. But a farming business isn't actually worth anything. And so I suppose if we're getting an investor into a beef business, we that's where the marketing kind of piece comes in. So the value of, of our business actually sits in the brand and as a marketing house and big fan of brands and, and so have kind of built our future plans around a virgin type kind of model um, when we're kind of trying to lift the value of that that intangible uh, brand. Sam is referring to Richard Branson and the Virgin Group, a multinational conglomerate famous for its complex structure, sometimes called the House of Brands. Back to Sam and a few more areas of the business model where they've shaken things up. The way we finance the calves is quite innovative too. So again, I suppose you've got to remember, uh, Steph and I don't have a lot of equity really at all and we had to kind of create this from nothing. So we went to um, a known debt provider in the livestock world and their interest rates were like double digits, which is pretty crazy given the cash rate. So we went to the private debt market through family, friends and other contacts. Uh, Again, learned all this stuff through my time in in VC and, and in ag tech and yeah, basically raised debt capital. I think we're paying about 8% at the moment. And therefore, we can buy the calves with that debt. And then the calf uh, will be processed as a yearling at uh, 18 to 20 months old. And, and at that point, that's when we pay back the principal and the interest. So that that means that from a cash flow point of view, we don't have to pay regular interest payments. We do it at the end in a big lump sum. Um, and so it's end up a cost of ownership of around $70 a head, which is pretty palatable. Um, so that's quite innovative. Then the way we're structuring our future lease payments too, it looks like um, at a, as an early starting position, we're working with some investors where we actually pay leased on the farm's ability to produce feed. And so it'll be much like a lease that I've seen in the McDonald's business. So McDonald's franchisees pay lease to McDonald's Corporation based on a percentage of their gross sales for the month. So they have a floating rent payment. And so we're going to be doing that on the land, which is exciting. So if we have poorer rainfall and even a drought, and therefore our productivity is low, we we don't pay as much rent, which is perfect. But then, of course, happy to share the upside in a really good season. So Mm. we're just being really innovative in every which way we can. 
Is that related to the season or how does that tie in with management practice? Like if you're doing better by the land and, you know, natural capital, whether it's storing carbon, better coverage, you know, et cetera, do you get rewarded for that in some way or is that just through yield and over time resilience? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And that's where actually I've got a meeting in an hour and a half to nut, nut, <laughs> nut more of this out because um, if you did it just on the farm's ability to produce feed, there are lots of variables that can come into that. So we are looking at a way, an output figure, which is a result of increasing soil health, along with the fact that figure is probably marked to rainfall. So we might have you know an increase in soil health and soil carbon over time, which increases water holding capacity, nutrient density, but have a below average rainfall kind of year but we still maintain kind of healthy um, carrying capacity on that property so what what it's looking like is it'll be linked to animal days kind of per hectare per 100 mil of rain or something along those lines are you able to do that and even consider that because it's outside of the traditional kind of bank and livestock finance is that just private agreements that you guys will be able to get up with people who believe in this kind of thing Yes, absolutely. So the kind of investors we're working with are generally kind of regeneratively focused and, and want to see farming change. Um, and more excitingly, they, they want to um, be a part of that story. Uh, they want to be a part of our story. And they, they are really excited about our background in our, in our team, which I, I suppose talks to your world a lot. You know, you invest in the team. Beyond some of the feel-good aspects of Regen Ag that are so often sold, Sam has focused on building an evidence base to back up different claims. For us, with my ag tech background, it is about building data. The issue with regenerative agriculture is there's not enough data. So, you know, if you're a U.S. pension fund and you want to invest in, you know, you want to chuck a billion U.S. dollars into Australian agriculture, which there's a one or two have, you're only going to put it into in a, into a conventional agricultural system, whether or not that's in wheat, walnuts, dairy, beef, uh, because there's the data. There's 60, 70 years of production data and performance data that you know, you know you're going to get your return. There's obviously no assessment done on the environmental cost of that return, uh, and that's where we're starting to see some people say, well, we'd like to invest in a different type of farming, but but you can't show me five to 10 or, or, or three years of, of evidence that suggests that you can produce as much food or, or more or, or at least commit to a return on investment. So that for me is, is our kind of part of our end game and our scalability plans. So Sam has gone outside of the traditional finance world to get what we might call true believers on board, those first investors who believe in something before it even exists. But like for most startups, raising money is not easy. I suppose like a lot of things, it, it, it has been a slog, um, but it's funny once you get a few runs on the board and, and you're in the paper and, and, you know, online and all of a sudden people start to notice and, and you then attract like-minded people who, who, you know, and all of a sudden, I wouldn't say things are snowballing quite, quite so much yet, but they're, they're moving without a lot of pushing, I suppose is the best way to put it. Um, but yeah, to be honest, Sarah, I mean, the first, I mean, my, my capital raising, you know, I mean, I did it with Sprout X and I've done it with other projects. This is obviously very different. And, yeah, the capital raising piece for Tazaco is one of the worst experiences of my professional life. I used to watch the startups do it and, you know, it's just such a grueling process and you've just got to, you know, just got to get used to hearing no and used to, you know, you've got to kiss a lot of frogs. And so, yeah, I don't want to do that again anytime soon. And hopefully I'll get my career to a point where I can prove my worth through projects and traction that people will come to me and say, hey, 
I've got five million bucks. I, I think we should do something together. What do you reckon? So yeah, that's always the goal. Just get people throwing money at you. That's I, I want to go back to the data piece. How do you guys? How are you guys doing that from a kind of ag tech or data perspective? Is it is it yeah different tools, spreadsheets, off the shelf stuff, custom stuff? How have you thought about building that base of evidence? Our main farm management platform is actually MyGrazing. So that enables actually what we were talking about earlier. It enables me to calculate those stock days per hectare, per 100 mil of rain, all that stuff. So, so that's the main farm management piece that we're using, which will over time show you know where we were at from a stocking capacity and, and where we can go. So it actually kind of does a lot of what we need something to do. I'm actually just saving up uh, or trying to find some ways to invest in some into some better weather technology um, monitoring. And, and look, it's only a couple of grand, but it's you know being a startup, it's another another two or three ground that I've got to find and justify so and we've also got a we're quite lucky we've got a Bureau of Meteorology rainfall weather station about a kilometre away so it's almost like why would you bother but you know microclimates and all that stuff um, and I've actually built my own data measurement uh, kind of I suppose you could call it an app it's really a Google form uh, that sits in a, a Google sites which feeds a Google sheets uh, and enables me to um uh, it enabled, sorry, Google heard me talking uh, to it and it's, <laughs> it's my phone's lit up. So apologies. And the idea there is I can, we've got, um, I've picked 14, I call them proof point sites around the farm, their GPS location. And so with my phone, I can go to that GPS location. My Google will tag the, tag the photo. So I have to take a photo in the exact same direction from that proof point every time I do it. And again, Google will, will GP, I can, tag those photos to that location really seamlessly. I then open up my Google form that I made, which is a bit like a little app as you use a mobile version. And then I, I um, basically objectively assess about seven or eight different types of data in that location. Um, we have a penetrometer, which is like a big long kind of stick that you stick in the ground and it tells you what kind of pressures you need to get X amount of depth. Uh, we do some bricks reading. So that is the sugar content of the leaves uh, leaves of specific plants in the area, observations of what weeds are growing. Uh, obviously, it'll put a timestamp on it, uh, water infiltration tests and a bunch of other things that hopefully over time we'll start to see um, those proof points increase or decrease based on whatever metric it is. So so I suppose from a startup perspective, there's some cheap and dirty hacks that we've kind of just set up to get some, some data happening. And, and then in time, of course, we'll bolt in more as we go. But just to my final point is that all kind of sits in and behind the, the actual carbon baselining that we've done, which is, you know, a one metre deep sample uh, with two samples taken, one at 30 centimetres and the next one, the next kind of 30 centimetres to one metre. And that gives us a whole heap of information. And of course, we'll be relying on that uh, and that objective measurement on our farm over time to see increases of, of soil health. So I want to jump to the soil or the carbon stuff, but just before I do, the driver for that app that you built is that was it for management decisions or was it for some kind of reporting around some of the finance and reporting obligations that you guys might have? Uh, actually, neither. I um, mean, the production piece it'll be interesting to use in both, um, but it's actually just more for me to to have data when maybe we do another po podcast in five years and and people say. Oh, I can't believe that you've, you know, you've done this, you've done that, or you've, you know, you've increased your carrying capacity by 40%. You know, what has gone into this? And we can say, well, we've gotten rid of that hard pan, you know, that sits under our soil. We, our water infiltration now is, is sped up dramatically, which means, you know, so I, it, I'm actually just building that data so I can talk to a whole bunch of information around, you know, where we were and, and now where we are 
There are clearly some potential marketing benefits here as well for Taz Agco down the line that Sam is looking to back up with evidence. But there are other motivations too, drivers that relate more to pride and passion. There's also a part of me that's doing this because I actually want other farmers to be empowered and excited about what we're doing and think, oh shit, maybe I can do that too. And and I've been onto this farm in, in the Gippsland, just quickly, I'm digressing a bit, but um, right. and this, I'm getting my, my soil nerd, my inner nerd on now, but um, <laughs> I walked onto this farm and we walked into a paddock. It sent shivers up my spine. The It was like walking on a mattress, it, uh, and but it wasn't squishy, like wet. It was the most amazing experience. And I've been reading about this stuff and you hear about it but I'd never, ever seen it. And this farm, the biology and the, the soil condition under our feet was just out of this world and that's where I want to get to. And if I can uh, show people the trajectory that we've had to take and what we've had to do to get to there, um, I think that would be you know, uh, a great thing. Taz Agco has been in the news recently a bit for some Tasmanian firsts in the carbon space. We're the first soil carbon uh, project in Tasmania to to be registered under the ERF, the Emissions yeah. Reduction Fund. So, the ERF is a is a billion dollar fund being set up by the government to buy and invest in in things and credits that allow Australia to reduce its overall targets that it's agreed to under the Paris Agreement um, with the UN. So. It's pretty major. Um, in my mind and in my world, there are other soil carbon companies and other ways of testing that you can do. This is the only methodology that's been approved by the UN and it's the only methodology that's accepted globally in, in being able to register soil credits for you know at an international kind of level. And that for me, again, was if we're going to make some pretty big claims around carbon and whatnot on our farm with our cattle it's like well how can you make that claim you know what testing methodology have you used and i'm like, so i've used the best in the world um you cannot get any better soil testing carbon methodology than this and it was actually developed in australia which is cool too so um so yeah so we're the first to register a soil carbon project with the federal government which is huge and what i've heard is that process is pretty cumbersome to go through tell us about what you've had to do yeah, so it's actually not so cumbersome for us, and and this is kind of full credit to AgriProve and Corporate Carbon, who have not only developed this methodology alongside the federal government and took it to Paris, but but have actually they're the ones implementing it and managing it across Australia. And 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 again, credit to them, they they kind of sat down with farmers that have had experience in the carbon space, and they said, well, what do you need? What do you want? You know, it's kind of classic customer validation, and they said, you know, it, it is one of the biggest minefields for legislative compliance and stuff. So a lot of farmers in the early days almost had to become experts in environmental legislation and whatnot to try and wade their way through the crap and red tape that sits around registering soil carbon projects and whatnot. So to be honest, AgriProve have taken a lot of that pain away from us. We we have a simple land management plan that we've got to set up and maintain. We've got to sign off on some things. They've actually built an online platform that you can use to manage your whole project online. So yeah, it, so to be honest, it actually has been very painless for us. The actual soil testing on farm was horrific and actual fact the guy that did it as a contractor said he's not going to ever do it again because it drove him insane it's so it's so cumbersome but again that's just because it's 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 got to be federally audited it's a really rigorous um thorough process and so tell us like what he actually had to do just paint a picture of it and it's expensive too as i understand it to get that done 
That's not too bad. Um, I can't remember the prices off the top of my head, unfortunately. I wish I could, but I think it cost us about two, two and a half grand to do about 170 hectares. So uh, I suppose it's, it's expensive if you start thinking I've got 60,000 acres in Western Queensland, but if you're running the stocking capacity and you're running the output that we are, it's not that big. I think you can break even with a carbon project at 40 hectares, ideally, as, as so your listeners have got a bit of a benchmark. But yeah, so basically they go down a metre uh, and they pull a, pull a soil core out and that soil core has to be intact, which is obviously pretty difficult. So sometimes we hit a rock halfway down, which means you had to move it. If you move it, you've got to move it, I think, three centimetres. Like this is all like fully with the GPS. The GPS has got, I think, one and a half centimetre accuracy. And, you know, if there's, a, if there's a cow pat or a poo there, you've got to use a second site, which could be a three or 400 metres away on farm. All the dig sites are randomly selected by a computer at, at random. So you've got no control over where they are or what they're doing. And, uh, yeah, so we dig that. And then they had like a, a piece of what they call an angle iron, which is a 90 degree bit of steel. Uh, I suppose it must have been 70 by 70, but, but sitting in a V. And so the soil core then get laid out in that V. So it's sat sat in that and then like literally they had like dry paint brushes like an archaeologist on on that geo and uh and they've like and they'd take the top 30 centimeters they'd bag it and they'd barcode it and they'd take a photo of the barcode and they'd take a photo of the gps and that so everything was linked back to photos and then they'd bag the bottom this, this again and they'd brush it off with the paintbrush into the packet to get every single little ounce of dirt in there and again barcoded photographed and everything was on this huge piece of paper which had every single coordinate and everything to do with everything and then that was all photographed as well so you had that back up and yeah I mean it took us uh, a better part of seven hours I think to do to do 18 digs and I think they're getting better and quicker at it now but yeah it's pretty pretty detailed but it's got to stack up internationally when Australia stands up at the Paris you know at the UN and says this is this is the breakdown of all the carbon credits that we bought. We bought all these soil carbon credits. That's got to be internationally scrutinised. So, uh, you know, go to the paintbrushes. <laughs> I love it. And so what do you expect to get from this? Like what were the drivers for you to register this project? Financial versus branding versus good for the world? What was, how did you think about it? So most of it actually was marketing and branding, to be honest. Uh, it was that ability to stand by this data and say, well, look what we've done. The next part of it would have been, I believe it's the right thing to do. And if it's the right thing to do, I want to be able to prove to the world that, that we've done this and, and what better to, to use in this particular methodology. Uh, and I suppose the last point was that was the carbon credit value, was the money. I mean, we might end up getting, I don't know, 13 to 16, 17 grand a year uh, in, in carbon credits from about year three or four, once the soil's kind of got itself sorted. That's not to be sneezed at. That's not too bad, but it's like whatever. Um, the value that that, that that testing and that validation will present to us in the market uh, at a meet and, and consumer levels far greater than 13 grand. So as a self-proclaimed regenerative farmer who is already seeing the benefits of the marketing and branding using the term, what does Sam think of Regen Ag and any skeptics out there? Well, he's not afraid to tell you. Uh, I suppose, you know me, I'm a pretty opinionated and, and I'm, uh, I have a lot of conviction to my beliefs. And, you know, if, you, if you're speculative about regenerative agriculture, you probably need to get out, out, out from underneath your rock and stop looking through uh, the world through a keyhole and open your mind. Um, to be completely upfront, I, I get very defensive of it. 
you know, there's there's guys out there in New Zealand, America, mainland Australia, running several thousand acres. They've got input costs that are at 20 or 30% of what they used to be, and they're, they're producing as much, if not more, food. Their soils are incredible. Their water holding capacity is incredible, and, and it really is the future. I, I think we need to remember that this conventional system that we're using, it's actually only about 70 years old. It was only created really kind of between and after you know, World War One, World War Two, And since then, we've seen trillions of tonnes of carbon be released into the atmosphere through, you know, tillage and, and the use of chemical fertilisers and, and pesticides. And uh, the opportunity is, is to start restoring and, and fixing that. And I just, I, I really hope people start to wake up and because it's actually an enormous uh, and exciting amount of people that are a part of this journey. Like, you know, everywhere I turn on, on online, we're seeing more and more farmers pick it up and, and run with it. Sam's view is that this movement, and the way he talks about it does make it sound like a movement, will be led from the ground up, not by policymakers. And just quickly for any non-Australians out there, Sam mentions David Littleproud, who is the current Minister for Agriculture. You know, you've got David Littleproud coming up the other day saying that he supports Roundup. I mean, Jesus, you know, this is kind of where we're at. This is the level of leadership that we have in our country. So my point is, is this is not going to be a top-down piece. This is a grassroots, ground-up uh, movement, a lot like ag tech, uh, where you've got the people on the ground actually doing the work and, and rising. And then what we're starting to see now is consumers, and there are already top-end retailers in Melbourne and Sydney that are, have reached out to us because they want regenerative produce in their stores. So consumers are going to start to demand that produce is produced in a way that is beneficial for the environment and you're going to have to prove it and and farmers are going to have to start to service that market. And, of course, you know, there will be supply where there is demand and and I I would imagine in 15, 20 years we'll hopefully start to see, you know, the the majority start to adopt practices that are are turning their back on, I would say, a very destructive previous 70 years um, and are starting to kind of grasp the future and I would also like to make one more statement on this is um a lot of these principles are actually the old way of farming like they're not actually new like it's actually the way we've been farming for tens of thousands of years the human civilization or its civilizations have have evolved using these practices and 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 then of course everything was industrialized and and companies and agribusiness came into it and all of a sudden we thought we could do it better and to, to give credit where credit's due, the conventional system has shown we can produce an enormous amount of food, but it's also come at a cost. And we're starting to see those costs in both planetary health, soil health, and also human health. So anyway, it's going to be an interesting next decade uh, in this space. So if anyone's got a problem with that, feel free to give me a call. <laughs> yeah, I would say, um, I, I think it's more about the term that, that regenerative kind of implies that that there's a prescriptive system that you have to do to be a good farmer, as opposed to following a set of principles around good farming practices that I think most, well, I don't know about most, but lots of farmers would already be doing and identify with. But the term of kind of, you know, this is good, this is bad, but it's vague and confusing and marketing bullshit maybe is is where the pushback comes, but it's also what consumers want. So a bit of a double-edged sword, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of strange because, I mean, the reality is, is, the regenerative agri- a true regenerative agriculture re- enterprise farmer whatever it's actually a mindset shift and so yeah okay you can rotationally graze your cattle it doesn't in my mind really 
mean or stack up that you're a regenerative farmer because if you're still using like you know pesticides and and and, and you know herbicides fungicides insecticides and, and synthetic first um you're still damaging soils like it, it doesn't it just i don't care which way you look at it. It, it the proof is there and if you're damaging soils you're not you're not putting carbon back in the ground you're not enhancing a lot of things that we need to be enhancing to increase quality and, and environmental benefits so you know, I, I suppose the good thing about the region ag space is it's not like organics and there's not a set prescriptive way that you have to farm or, or, or a list of things that you can't do. But on the same token, there's a lot of immaturity still in the region ag market where you've got people claiming to be regenerative when they're still not really doing things that I think most true regenerative farmers would, would support. So I think until we see a mindset change and, and it's so simple as just stop killing stuff right? The whole conventional sector is set around killing stuff. We spray weeds, we, we use synthetic fert, which, which, you know, kills off biology. So, so we need to stop killing stuff and, and just start working with mother nature a bit. And, and um, I know, again, this is where the conventional kind of right-wing hard farmer starts to see this is all a bit greeny, airy, fairy stuff as you start talking about working with mother nature. Um, but that's the mindset shift that it actually requires because once you start working with her, she does so much work for us uh, and get and we just get out of the way and let her do a thing. And, and if I can just add something on there and just take weeds, for example, right? So mother nature loves diversity. You go into any wild bush or jungle anywhere in the world and you'll see lots of plants all growing together. And that's the way she likes it. She does that on purpose because all those plants interact and work with each other in a different way. In industrial agriculture, of course, we create monocultures uh, where we spray everything out and we put just one or two species in. So weeds are being you know, germinated because she's trying to create diversity. That's what she's trying to do. And once you start to understand what weeds are coming up and why they're coming up, then all of a sudden we start to see a really exciting shift. And if I can just use my, myself as an example, like I've got dock and, and scotch thistle in, in many of our paddocks and the old way would be, oh, you just go spray them. But I know too, if you spray them every year, they just keep on coming up. So like, what's, you know, what's the definition of insanity, right? So, um, and then so I sat back and I, I talked with some mentors and they're like, well, what is it that Doc and Scotch Thistle are doing? Like, what is it about those plants um, that, that ryegrass and clover don't have? And it's like, well, they've both got huge tap roots and they both love pulling up um, P and K, phosphorus and potassium from down low and making it available for plants that don't have as deeper roots. And so that's what their function is. That's what they're trying to do. So what we then did is we went and put in multi-species mixes um, in those areas with, with tap roots. And what do you think's growing? You know, the oats that we put down are kind of, yeah, they're kind of going, but not really. The tillage radish, the chicory, anything with a really big tap root, Mother Nature's got behind and they're disproportionately growing at a bigger and faster rate than anything with a shallow root base. So it's kind of all of a sudden it's like, you just need to get out of her way, put something in her way, and, and all of a sudden we're now growing huge amounts of cattle feed because uh, cattle don't like eating dock and scotch thistle in a way uh, and doing obviously something to the soil that she's been trying to do herself, but we keep on killing it and getting it away. So, again, I know it sounds a bit airy-fairy, but that's kind of the mindset shift that we're seeing in this space, and it's so exciting because all of a sudden you start saving money and producing as much feed, and, I mean, you know, if that's not reason to jump in, you know, what isn't? I so appreciate how passionate and candid Sam is. Regen Ag is a nuanced topic in what is already a really complex space. And what I'm learning in this series is that there are many views out there, but not everyone is willing to publicly share or stand behind theirs. Another thing that people, whether farmers or entrepreneurs or both, struggle to talk about is mistakes. 
the journey of starting any business is full of ups and downs, and the key to succeeding, as Sam is finding with Taz Co., is learning from the failures. We'll close out this episode with Sam reflecting on the best and worst parts of the Taz Co. journey so far. We've had the worst spring summer in 30 years, and we've now had the best autumn, apparently, in 50 years. So as my neighbours keep telling me, you've had a bit of a baptism of fire. So, um, yeah, we had a horrific run, and then and it's been an amazing autumn. So it's been a pretty rough high and low coaster journey from a seasonal point of view. I don't know. It's a really good question from the business point of view. It's kind of, I think we get, you know, you get so wrapped up in the weeds, and I am so tough on myself, you 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 don't take the opportunity to sit back and go, wow, two and a half years ago, this was an idea. We've now raised, you know, a number of million dollars to buy a property, to invest in an operations company. We've got an employee. We've got all this stuff sitting around us, which has come from hard work, grind, hustle and risk taking. So that's a high, but I never really think of it like that because I'm just freaking out and chewing like you know what, uh, to, to get stuff sorted. So, um, but, you know, I think being with Steph and, and the family on the farm and, and being together and, and not having that, that hustle and bustle city lifestyle where you're running out the house at uh, 6.37 o'clock and you don't get back until, you know, 6.37 o'clock. And, you know, I think that's been a real high is just starting to pull back a bit and enjoy the pace and Tassie's got a slower pace. So I think that's been amazing. And then oh, probably my biggest low has just been, uh, managing, managing. We've we've had a few little glitches here and there with animal health that any farmer has, and it kind of has really gotten me down. I've got to remember that I'm human, and and this is the first time that I've actually done this. And whilst I've been farming on and off my, my whole life, when it's yours and they're your animals, it's all of a sudden it's very very different. So for me, that that that's probably my low my low my lowest point has been probably quite recently with this really really wet autumn. We've had some issues with um. With, uh, with worms and other bits and bobs that, that um, yeah, and it's, that's been pretty tough at, at a mental health level for me, just dealing with that stuff, an enormous amount of pressure. So, yeah, but, I mean, I think, as Dad said, you know, it's not, you know, you haven't buggered up until you repeat it. So, you know, if, if I get to this time next year and I, I'm whinging about the same thing, you'd have to say I, I'm really not a very good manager. So I, I really believe in the powers of observation and reflection and I'm always doing that. Um, so I'm really... I believe as clear as I can be on on how I've reacted and what it is that I'm dealing with and therefore what I need to do to change, improve or maintain that uh, in the future. So, yeah. Love it, Sam. Thank you. Really good stuff. Pleasure. So that's a wrap on episode two in our Regen Ag series. If you missed the first with Mark Wooten of Jigsaw Farms, you can find it at agtechsowhat.com. And if you're a farmer out there or anyone else working in agriculture with views on Regen Ag or feedback on the series, we'd love to hear from you. Until then, we'll be back next time with episode three of what I think will be a five-part series on Regen Ag. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Ag Tech So What? You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.